Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, Queens. We've got Elise on with us. She is a licensed professional counselor based in Austin, Texas, who is passionate about supporting athletes in their mental, emotional, and physical health and erasing mental health stigma within athletic culture. She has worked with athletes for seven years from preteens and high school student athletes to professional athletes. She provides support around anxiety, depression, relationships, injury, and retirement, and her main specialty is treating eating disorders in the athlete population. She encourages her clients in strengthening body trust and mind-body awareness and supports athletes in understanding their relationship with self, exercise, body, and with others. She's enjoyed being physically active all her life and has competed and participated in various sports. Her own experiences as an athlete led her to pursue this passion and a desire to positively impact and support other athletes in their most challenging times. Elise, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking with y'all today, so thank you. Well, this is one of my favorite subjects, so thanks for uh, getting getting all nerdy with me about mental health and <laughs> athletics. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah, good. <clears throat> I've been talking to clinicians. You know, I was loving the media frenzy around the Olympics and mental health. Mm-hmm. So tell us your take on working the field and your thoughts on more discussion around mental health of the athlete. I'm sure excited to hear more coming out about it. What do you think about the the discussion around it these days? I was so excited. I mean, I love the Summer Olympics because mm-hmm. I love track and swimming, but I was so excited that one of the main narratives was around mental health and and we've kind of seen more of a push from this, like from athletes and in the, the NBA in, in like 2018 uh, had their mental like mind health initiative and, and had adopted new rules, like for every team to have a professional. And then the NFL followed suit and even have like added resources for players, coaches, and family members, mm-hmm. you know, and then we saw the gymnast speaking out and Naomi Osaka and, and Dwayne Wade talking about, you know, retirement and seeing a therapist and Mm -hmm. then the Olympics. And I was like, this is just amazing. Like, I I just feel like it has just, you know, really added year after year, like something has really added to the conversation. And, and I think some of the important pieces too, are that, you know, people of color and black people have really had a voice in this, which I think is so powerful for breaking down barriers for athletes who, you know, are wanting to access mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also like, I'm just excited about how this will eventually like trickle down to, you know, more universities having like a standard, like mental health professional or, you know, high school and like just it becoming more commonplace. Yeah. Because my hope is like, 
eventually, you know, for athletes, it would just be, you know, seeking out a mental health provider could be as normalized as like going to a physical therapist. And so I just think this is so powerful. I was going to ask you, Becca, too, because you're working with more athletes than I am these days. And Elise, do you, when you're working with athletes, do you think the stigma of getting help and talking about it? I'm thinking about, it was like five years ago, I was speaking with the university program about making a program for athletes and mental health. And they were so concerned about the athlete, Mm -hmm. like someone finding out the athlete was going to go to the program that we ended up not even doing it because of the Mm -hmm. wanting to protect the athlete. So what are you seeing in the office? Are still, are athletes still like the stigma around mental health or do you think it's gotten better? I'll at least speak first. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you, think, Elise? Um, you know, I, I have a lot of them in my office, you know, so I'm, you know, I hope more people, but I think, you know, there is still just this narrative of like push through and, you know, don't feel just, you know, but also like there are high costs, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, am I going to lose playing time? Um, and I think just a lot of education for coaches would be really helpful yeah. and, and like athletic directors, because many of them were also athletes, right? So they're coming in with the same narrative. And so I think just a lot, I think there could be a lot more education, but I do think like, you know, for example, if you're a young, you know, white female on track team struggling with an eating disorder, you're probably more likely going to get support than like a young black male on the football yeah. team. Right. And so like, I think there are definitely still so many barriers right. mm-hmm. for some people. What do you think? And, Becca? Well, that's exactly, I'm going to pick up from that point. I think it's dependent on if the culture is conducive and supportive of mental health mm-hmm. and mental health resources. So some schools are great. Some teams are great. But it's modeled from mm-hmm. administration, coaches, you know, your your seniors that are being mentors. If they embrace it, then everybody else will. But if not, they don't want that that stigma. So it really has to come from the mm-hmm. top down. That's a really good point. The culture of the program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Good point. So Very good point. you mentioned like these athletes that are retiring and transitioning out of sport. So for somebody who's retiring, maybe deciding to leave or has to make the decision unexpectedly, what are some of the mm-hmm. biggest struggles that you see when it comes during this transition? Yeah, I think the piece that you just brought up, whether it's a choice or not, is a big piece of it. You know, I think this is a time where there's potentially a lot of like loss of identity Actually, they have like higher rates of substance use after retirement and eating disorders and and depression and body image challenges. I mean, I think even with the pandemic, we all saw like how people lost their like outlets and their Mm -hmm. ability to cope well. And so I think a lot of identity pieces come into play there. Other than identity, what do you notice when it comes to kind of disordered eating that that it's popping up more after that they've had a history of it and it gets worse. What are you kind of noticing in that world? What I noticed is like wanting to keep a certain aesthetic or like if, if part of a, a certain aesthetic is or look or, you know, idea of body image is connected with athletic identity, 
you know, we see like, okay, well, I'm not training as much, so I should just like really control my food or like, okay, I've got to like try to still keep a certain like appearance to be considered like, you know, athletic or fit in some fashion. And so I think, you know, if it's a control piece or even just like a identity and body image piece of like, you know, wanting to try to control any other change or things like that, some of it is just that, you know, athletes have, you know, trained and eaten a certain way for so long that they kind of have to relearn how to eat in a Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the comparison, let's say somebody has a planned transition, like I'm going to retire after college or at this age. What do you see as being helpful tools for them to ease into that rather than being thrown into it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think even getting athletes into my office, like in my experience, like getting them into my office and like already getting to expand like their definition of their identity before they retire is so helpful because I feel like I've had so many like athletes, student athletes, you know, and their definition is, well, if you're not a student athlete, then you're not an athlete. And and I'm like, well, what does anybody after the age of 22 do? You know, like Mm -hmm. is nobody after that point an athlete? And so I think even like just expanding the definition of, you know, what an athlete is, what is like, I think there can be so many rules or ideas on what is the qualifying movement or exercise, you know, and that can be so narrow that they kind of like kick themselves out of their own identity piece. Mm. So, so I think just even like exploring that and expanding, like, you know, how does this, how does this still fit into your life? How is it part of it? But also like, what are the other pieces that up until this point, like you haven't gotten to explore or like add to your identity or like really like foster in your identity and, and definitely like a time of exploration and just curiosity. I mean, and some of it is life skills, right? So like if, you know, I think depending on when somebody retires, you know, if you're 26 and you're retiring and you're like, okay, well, I've never applied for a job, you know, yeah. when mm-hmm. a lot of people are doing that, you know, much earlier. And so I think it, it also kind of depends on, on when they're retiring of like, okay, some of it's real basic life skill kind of things. And like, okay, how does this transition to other passions and interests that you have? Like how, how can you use your skills in another area? And then some of it is deeper again, just like that identity work of like how, does this still fit in your life? And then like, what are other pieces of your identity Mm. as well? I'm thinking so much (laughs) about that identity piece as a young athlete who is competitive and very good. There is this encouragement really or an expectation that you emerge yourself in the sport, right? Which Mm. then Mm -hmm. you're spending all your time in. And really, that's a really good point you make that this developmental piece of skills that I should be learning when I'm not because I'm so immersed in it can really be I'm mm-hmm. just thinking of like this like a this panic or anxiety of I'm behind or I don't know who mm-hmm. I am or I don't know how mm-hmm. to get my own apartment or the grocery shopping right that I'm sure right. you're, you're working working so much I never thought about that like delayed developmental mm-hmm. piece that happens yeah. when you're in it for so long mm-hmm Yeah. And I mean, even the piece, like something so simple as training, right? Or, you know, once they leave a 
structured program, they're like, well, I don't even know how to like work out. I've never really done this on my Someone own. Someone like, told me how to work out. Have ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're like, I've never just gone by myself and like figured it out. Right. Or, you know, like you said, like got an apartment or all these things. And, and, and certainly I think the, yeah, that behind piece, I think that's so important. And then I think too, like, as you're talking about being so immersed, I think it's even harder for athletes where doubly, they only have one one thing in their identity, which is this athletic piece, but, but doubly hard when other people only relate and see that piece of their identity. Right. Mm -hmm. So like you only see yourself that way and other people only relate to you that way. That foreclosure after retirement is so much like stronger in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that'd be difficult. So do you have certain tools or even like therapeutic techniques that you like to use with clients to help process and cope during this transition? I think, you know, a lot of it is, like I said, addressing any, like, like anything major, like an eating disorder or substance use, you know, treating that certainly. And then the practical pieces that we talked about exploring, like relaxation or fun or like, you know, what other movements and sport would they like to be curious about and try out? And definitely just, you know, understanding what are their values, how is that part of who they are and and what they want to pursue and continuing their purpose in life. And just kind of probably also like, you know, processing through like different rules they may have, like, oh, I can't be, you know, a coach or I can't be this, you know, or different things like that of, okay, well, what do you really want to do, you know? And again, back to that piece about really expanding their definitions of, of what can fit into their identity or what that looks like. Mm-hmm. I For those that aren't really in the kind of eating disorder world field, you, we use a lot of this language, but can you define a little bit about what you mean by strengthening body trust and mind-body awareness when it comes to like athletes? Can you talk a little bit about what that means for, you know, someone who's listening that, that wouldn't understand what that is? Yes, I love that question. When When I'm thinking about an athlete, and this can certainly be true for other people as well. But in the context of being an athlete, I think we can so easily cut off from the, you know, from the head, right? Like just shoulders down, like don't feel anything. Mm -hmm. And so just really like, actually, it's amazing how many athletes like come into my office and they like aren't actually connected and in tune with their body. Cause like they've just really had to cut it off. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so really like being able to listen and, you know, understand the cues that their body is sending them and, and, you know, being able to trust themselves and like what message they're getting, you know, I think even just a simple piece of this would be like knowing, I I feel like I've talked to so many people who knew they were injured and other people told them they were fine. So they kept playing and they knew something wasn't right Mm -hmm. with their body, but they just said, okay, well, I'll keep doing it. And, and I think that's just such a tangible example of like, okay, trusting your own body and then having this, your body be able to trust you to care for it well and, and, you know, do what you need to do for health and, and being a little more connected there. Mm, I'm just thinking, yeah, how often or how much is an athlete being told what to do with their body in terms of training mm-hmm. or even like, nope, keep going. Or what's normal. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, right. just, no pain, no gain. 
Yeah. And then now all <laughs> right. of a sudden, no one's telling me what to do. And now I'm in charge of this thing. Right. Like, right. yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even with the food piece, right. Of Like they're told what to eat. And like, so even having to learn that, right. Like relearning hunger fullness cues, relearning like, okay, how do I actually feed my body? Like, you know, and, and certainly with our diet culture, which is so pervasive within athletic and, and, you know, fitness culture, you know, that's all about not trusting your body, right. And having some kind of external control. And so, yeah, I think that that's really prevalent for athletes and like, okay, external control of the food. And, but then what does it mean to really like be in tune with your body around Mm -hmm. that? Good well, stuff. Like in tune. That's probably in a really tune. good word. Yep. Mm-hmm. In sync. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tuning in. Yeah. I know I think clients that struggle with eating disorders are really uncomfortable oh, with yeah. like, no, I do not want to tune in. <laughs> my body's <laughs> over yeah. here and my brain and mind is over here. So it is like that tolerance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also athletes aren't used to like sitting down. I mean, they're active, obviously. So right. it can also be such a distraction right. from our feelings. That's why I always had a right, lot of respect right. for Phil Jackson. Like, there's a great example of a culture that embraced, like, mental health. Phil Jackson, uh-huh. when he did a lot and of meditation, then, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and then if you watch the documentary that Michael yeah. Jordan had, like, when they mm. were about ready to break, he didn't kick them off the team if they said, like, Coach, I need a mental health day. Like, he said, okay. Or, like, when Dennis Rodman went to Vegas and didn't come back, he just sent the guys, like, go get him. He's having his moment and uh-huh. just... Was mm-hmm. very like holistic in how he handled all those personalities <laughs> way before <laughs> meditation mindfulness got mm-hmm. popular. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was. I think too. Like maybe there's been more of a discussion somewhat around at, between athletes, but I think also like there's a outside perception. You know, usually that athletes are you know superhuman in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so. You know, I think some of it is just really more of like a general population needs education, you know, that about their narratives of athletes and like, you know, athletes are human and, you know, experience the same things and like need support as well. So you're right. I've been hearing and I think that's what listeners and viewers are wanting is like the human story behind the athlete. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're seeing this was Mm -hmm. Alex Smith and his injury, the football Uh player, like. We're tuning mm-hmm. into these stories because of the human being experience as well as you are an athlete. I know Michael Phelps is really big on we're human beings as well as athletes. And, I again, I mm-hmm. think that's that's such a great way to continue to obviously talk about this. Mm-hmm. Elise, you're doing great work, and thank you so much for being on. We like to end every interview with asking you how you live out the fit philosophy of balancing performance health intellect and taking time for self how are you doing that in austin texas <laughs> yeah well i think we've all learned so much about that in the last two years <laughs> absolutely still learning I, yeah. I don't know about y'all but being a mental health therapist through the last two years has been relentless it's been it's challenging been challenging yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think we all like it's been grueling. we need a support <laughs> <been> group <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
So, you know, I think first I just try to give myself a lot of understanding and grace that it's not going to feel perfectly balanced ever. Mm-hmm. And like some things will take priority and then not to completely lose my time for self, obviously, and like creative outlets because they support me in whatever my current priority is. But I think I tried to stress less about like, it's all got to be balanced, right? Like that does not help. And then I, and, and even just like understanding my own temperament, I think is helpful. I come from like a family, like, like our, like we are workers, like we are workhorses. Like we just have that narrative, like within my family culture. And so I think also like understanding myself and knowing my default would be to overwork and just really being in tune with myself and noticing like, oh, I'm like getting a message that like I def- like I need more movement right now or like I need a break or things like that. And like just honoring that, I, I think it's really helpful that I know my temperament mm-hmm. and then then I can just be very like aware of like setting boundaries around that of like my default is to to do take on too much work. So let me make sure I don't do that, you know. <laughs> Man, Um, I think it's so special and a key to, like, when you know your stuff and yourself and then you get mm -hmm. your needs met based on that, I mean, that is magic when when we find that out. in tune. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I can know, like, okay, when I need more, like, social time or more movement or, you know, like, doing some things like podcasts or, you know, talking at a university or whatever it is, those are all fun things and, and still, like, okay, I can just really notice when one is kind of lower than than it would feel nice. And Mm so, okay, how can I bring some more attention over here? But not in a way that's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, super like, you know, hypercritical of myself around it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on and doing the work you're doing and also being a listener to us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. I had so much fun. I love your podcast and I love that y'all are just, you know, spreading just education for other people and like allowing other people to feel connected and, and get whatever support they need as well. So I think that's Thanks, awesome. Elise. Reaching <laughs> the masses. Well, thank you so much. And you have a great day and mm-hmm. uh, we'll see you out there on the social media world. <laughs> Sounds good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. Bye, Bye Queens. Bye Queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fit queen and Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.